0: Just in the Lord. Morning. If you'll open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13, this morning is just going to be a brief introduction to uh, three more Sundays in the life of Samson. Um, Actually, this morning is a little special and it's unique. Uh, Later on in the service, we're going to take some time to observe a call to ministry of Tony Graffinino and his family. Uh, they'll be leaving us, uh, this is their last Sunday. So, um, but they're heading into full-time ministry, and I just, I, myself and the deacons feel more and more convicted to observe these moments in our church's life, and to observe them before the Lord, and to celebrate them as signs of life here. And so we're going to do that in a bit. But, uh, but what I'd like to do now is to just begin to introduce us to uh, the story of, of July and August. And that's the story of Samson. It's difficult just to start talking about Samson uh, for a few reasons. The first reason is he comes towards the end of the book. And in a lot of ways, the account of Samson is, in part, a punchline to the book of Judges. So if you just jump into the book of Samson, it's very difficult to make um, a lot of sense of it unless you understand that it is, it's the end point on a trajectory that's been set throughout the entire book of Judges. And, and another reason, and this slide kind of tells the story, is when you read the story of Samson, it's so Conan the Barbarian. I mean, if you don't think it's Conan the Barbarian, it's because you've read like the, the golden book on Samson, or the kid's book, or you've done the flannel graph on Samson, there is no flannel graph that's accurate for Samson, because you just can't do that. The story is it's graphic and it's dark, and it's frustrating and it's violent. Um, this will keep you coming to church during the summer. That's what we're doing. No, it, it, but in it, there are these solid foundational gospel lessons and truths that we can bring, bring out. But to get there, we have to start, right? In order for the, donkey bone, the jawbone of a donkey to make any sense to us in kind of a spiritual way, we have to start with building a certain context. And so this morning is kind of context for the life of Samson in the book of Judges. And so we'll actually begin a little bit before Judges. The, the time period that we're probably most familiar with with regards to biblical like Jewish history is the, the time of Moses and Joshua. That was a very definitional time for them. Uh, the, the people of God, that's where the law was given to them. The covenant Moses, under uh, Moses was given to them. Most of the Hebrew holidays that we know, Passover and Day of Atonement and all these came out of this time. This time period of Moses and Joshua might be typified as a time of great and direct ordered authority. It was an ordered time for the Hebrew people. God would speak, Moses would hear, and through him he would speak, and the Hebrew people would, they were not always obedient, but it was direct authority. It was do this, and when they were obedient, they did that. And when they didn't do that, it was clearly disobedient but it was very it was very clear and god was very involved god's feeding them with manna and god's doing things in their life and that's that's distinctive to that time in hebrew history certainly not like that today is it another kind of peculiarity to that period of time is that there was great purpose in the lives of the jewish people they were going somewhere which is Tremendously important for, you know, in our lives as far as the things that we accomplish. We usually accomplish great things when we're going somewhere, when we're doing something. And that time of Moses and Joshua was a time of journey with a destination. And that destination motivated them to do things and it allowed God to do things through them. And many of the stories, right, the bedrock of the Hebrew and Judeo-Christian faith is kind of, the crucible of that is during... This time in the the wilderness is their journey to the promised land. And there was great purpose there. There was also great solidarity among the Hebrew people. You know, when you you read the story of Moses, you don't get a sense as though, you don't really get a distinct appreciation for the tribe of Dan versus the tribe of Naphtali. Naphtali and Dan, they don't really seem to even matter to us. They don't seem like usable in measurements or metrics we just like to think of the Israelites and that's because during this formative stories of the Hebrew people there was great solidarity among the Jews they acted as Israelites they behaved as Israelites God said go and seven of the 12 tribes didn't go 12 of the 12 12 tribes went and God said stop and all the tribes stopped and when they sent spies into the land there was solidarity, wasn't there? Twelve spies, one from each tribe, went into the land. There's a certain sense of we are Israelites. There's a kind of the, the whole, the, the community identified itself and is identified through Scripture broadly as Israelites. Well, um, this all begins to change. This very ordered, very direct, very purposeful, um, th- theocratic people group, it changes when Joshua, at the death of Joshua, Joshua takes them into the land, and they conquer the promised land, and then they separate the land for the tribes, and they let the tribes head off to their own distinct lands, and settle down, and make lives for themselves. Which is very different from the purposeful journey to get to the promised land. It's tremendously different to go settle down and start living. In fact, what ends up happening is, what used to be very direct authority, now that, gets, that there's a disillusion of direct authority. There's no one like Joshua or Moses to speak to the people on God's behalf. Now there's 12 distinct areas. And even those 12 areas don't really have a, kind of a, a leader or a spiritual guide. Really, it's 12 areas in which there's multiple clans, in which there's multiple families. But what begins to happen is the core identification of somebody becomes their family. They just begin to think of themselves as families settling down for regular life. And their religion begins to reflect that. And I think we understand this. We it's hard actually I think for many of us except for moments in our lives, brief times in our lives to really identify with massive spiritual vision and purpose like you're going somewhere to a destination. More often than not, I think, for many Christian families, the Christian life is lived in living. And that was the end state for the Hebrew people. That's not a mistake. That's how God designed it. Is I'm going to give you this land, and then you're going to settle in the land, and you're going to live. And so we find that in the time, the time of the judges, that's going to be described over the next couple of weeks, it was a time of loose confederacy, not kind of directed solidarity but loose confederacy of tribes and clans and chieftains i continually think of like the afghani warlord environment as the land of the judges it's that kind of feel it's provincial it's regional and it's very clan family driven it's also a time when people are left to themselves to remain faithful to the covenant just like families are today. is you're left to your own family to remain faithful to the covenant. And God's done everything right. He's equipped you and he's given you things to do it, but ultimately it sits on you and your family. Well, that's precisely the environment that's built here in the time of Judges. They go to their own lands and they settle down, and God says, hey, come back to the, come back to the tabernacle three times a year, and I'll remind you of what I've done. But outside of that, right, remember, they're not even reading, most of them, and they don't have books. Most of the time, they have their memory of what God's done and the repetition of the festivals in their mind, and they bring that home, and they try to remain faithful. Judges has this phrase that sums up the time of the judges. It's this. It says, and everyone did what seemed right in their own mind. He says, that, that's, that's the theme of how people were back then is, it was kind of left to you and what's right in your own mind and you went out and figured out what to do. And I'm not saying that God designed it that way. I'm saying they kind of went to their own lands and then they subsequently did what was right in their own mind, which was very often not right. And they got themselves in trouble. And this is the occasion that introduced the need for judges. judges. Judges come out of the cycle of sin and redemption that, that was present among these people who were just trying to do what seemed right in their own mind, yet God had called them into covenant. So they were in covenant with God, but they were not doing what God had said. They were doing what seemed right in their own setting. And we get this, out of Judges comes a cycle that's given to us in Scripture. And this is, this is the cycle of Scripture. The, the catalyst behind the cycle is disobedience. And usually in, in the, the book of Judges, it's phrased like this. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's the phrase that's, that's brought before us in the first step of the cycle. And, and what ends up happening during that step of the cycle is, is after that, the Lord does the next thing, which is he raises up a, a people group or a group of people who come and they, they oppress. They bring oppression to the Israelite people. So they they violate the covenant through disobedience. Again, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then the Lord raises up some nation, like the Philistines or like the Amorites or someone like that. And these people come in and they oppress the Hebrew people. And then it's through that oppression, through the consequences of their sin, that they they begin to recognize it has been their sinfulness and their evil and their wickedness that's caused this. And so the third step in the cycle is that they cry out to the Lord. That's kind of the language of Judges And again they did evil, and God raised up, and they cried out. And after they cry out to the Lord, the Lord hears them, and the Lord raises up for them a deliverer, is what the text says. In fact, Judges is not really a good name for the book. When we hear judge, we think very judicially. It's deliverer. You might think the book might better be called Tribal Deliverers. Is my, how, might be how you understand the book of Judges. These deliverers were very often warriors. They were, it was very often kind of a regional issue. Rarely do we, should we really think of a judge as uh, delivering the entire country of Israel because, remember, it's like more like a confederacy. It's become much more tribal in these days. But it's much more like a provincial warlord or chieftain who rises up to kind of throw off the yoke of a people group that has come in And oppressed. That's what what a judge is. They're a a deliverer, a savior. Someone who fights back for the people. And this is the the cycle. Now, in Judges, this cycle is laid out to us very formally, right up front. In the first three or four Judges, it's laid out very clearly in this kind of rhythm. But the narrator of Judges, who, by the way, is... To me, one of the finest writers of Scripture. I know you can't rank Scripture, but I do. I I have my favorite places. And when you want to just talk about a literary masterpiece of storytelling, Judges is the best. The stories are so well told. I'm not saying you like the stories. I'm saying the stories grab you, and they trouble you, and they bother you, and they make you kind of wince, and want more, and they don't give you what you want, but they give you what you don't want, and you are frustrated, but three days later, you're still thinking about the story. From that perspective, they're like literary masterpieces. And the narrator of Judges is trying to show us something very clear. He has a goal when he's telling the story, and it is not simply to tell you about seven or eight or twelve Judges. He's trying to tell you about the trajectory of the Hebrew people during the period after Moses and Joshua and before the period of the kings. And the way he tells it is by using the judges. And we see this cycle of the judges, this evil, oppression, cry out, deliverance. Evil, oppression, cry out, deliverance. But it doesn't just go round and round like this. It goes around and it goes down like this. Like as they continue to cry out and they continue, the cycle goes on. Each iteration of the cycle is less pleasing to the ears. And less pleasing to the heart, and more frustrating. And, and things, as it, as it goes down, it's like a spiral staircase, and it gets rickety and rackety all the way down. And pretty soon, it's not even sound. It's just, it gets foul and dark as it just spirals down. And at the very bottom of the spiral cycle is Samson. He's the last judge that the narrator is going to tell you about. He's not the last judge. He's the last judge in the narrator is going to tell you about. Actually, the last judge is a wonderful judge, a godly man of God who anoints Saul, and he anoints David, and he's a prophet, and he's grown up in the temple, and his name is Samuel, and he's wonderful. But the narrator of Judges doesn't want you to know anything about him because it would ruin his trajectory. He's trying to teach us how the land was becoming. And so he ends with Samson which should give you some idea as to the point that Samson's going to be making for the book. Here's a, here's a way to notice it. L- look here. The first four judges, this is, this is roughly the number of years that they reigned or that there was peace in the land. These are the, and these are the ones we tell stories about, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Gideon. You know, Gideon, break the, the jars, his torch, 300 people take over a whole army these great stories. These are the ones that we brag about. And then, and notice how long they, that there's peace slash deliverance. And then there's this whole list of judges that none of us even know, and it's these. Notice the years. 40? No. 80? No. I bet you those first four judges actually bring more peace to the Israelite lands than all of these judges combined. You see how even in the length of peace in the land, how there's kind of a, a downward spiral. And it talks about, in the first four judges, it says, that, you know, Gideon was around for 40 years and there was peace for 40 years, is what it says. It talks about peace. By the time you get here, the narrator's just listing judges. And he was around and he had a bunch of kids and it was about eight years. And this guy came in 13 years. They're inconsequential. The time is less. There's, there's not much mention of peace in the land. And it ends with Samson which is where we begin. So let's look. Let's look in Judges chapter 13 as we briefly begin the life of Samson. We are going to just begin today. By the way, Samson's not the end of the book of Judges. Samson is the last judge in the book of Judges, but Judges ends in three major movements. It ends with the description of the last judge, Samson, which is going to show you that the judges have failed. Then right after that comes a short story of a priest. Uh, just It's this disappointing story of failed priesthood, which tells you that by the end of this era, the priesthood had failed. And then there is this Sodom and Gomorrah scene that is so utterly vile that you walk away from Judges saying, the Hebrew people have failed. And then it, at the very end, because of the Sodom and Gomorrah scene, Israel rises up against itself and goes into civil war. So by the end of the book of Judges, you say, the judges, the deliverers have failed, the priests have failed, the, the cities have failed, and the tribes have failed. Everyone has failed. It's hopeless, is by, the, by the, your, your perception, by the end of the book of Judges. But Samson is, is kind of the end of the line of the Judges. And let, let's read here, five verses. And as I read, I want you to think about this cycle. Because we have a quiz question. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah, came from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor is to be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. We'll talk more about a Nazarite next week. But let's, let's look here at the cycle. Okay, 13.1 begins very classically. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, right? There's evil. And then God raises up, right? And it says, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And then what's next? What's next in the cycle? This is the quiz. Cry out. out. Well done. Cry out. The next in the cycle is cry out. Where is that here? They do evil in the eyes of the Lord. God delivers them into the hands of the Philistines. And the next thing you see is an angel appears to 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 this woman and says, I'm going to give you a judge. You're going to give birth to a man who will begin to deliver the people from The Philistines. Now, wait a second. If they don't cry out, why is God bringing them a deliverer? Remember, who brought them the Philistines in the first place? God. God brought them the Philistines. God, apparently in the story, has made a problem for himself. The Philistines didn't just show up. God allowed them into the land to oppress the Israelites because of their sinfulness... And then God turns around without anyone crying out and brings them deliverance. And this is significant in the book. In the book, since this is the bottom of the spiral of the judges, we, you need to know that we are in a place, we are in a place where the people of God are no longer even crying out for salvation. That's the setting of the life of Samson is, it's one thing to do what's right in your own mind. And we're very, we know that, right? That's the land we live in. Let's not, we're really working here, by the way, so that you don't make Samson, like, inapplicable to your life. We live in a world where everyone does what seems right in their own mind. And we live in a world right now where for the most, most of us, we're not going on, on big trips for the Lord. Most of us are in a place where we're just living we're just living and we just try to be Christian amidst a whole bunch of other people and we just seem to do what seems right in our own mind and we're doing that in an ocean of people who are doing what is right in their own mind and when things get bad sometimes we cry out to the lord but this point in this point in the story this point in the life of god's people they are so unfamiliar with god they are so forgetful of what he's done it's so it's such a distant part of the past their ability to call to God and want God and even know who what kind of God they're calling, all of that has faded in so thinly that they are not even calling out. Because when you cry out to the Lord, and confession and repentance, that requires spiritual energy, and the people are spiritually fatigued by this point in the story. To so them, they would just soon. It's easier for them to simply compromise and deal with whatever needs to happen for them to live in peace with their neighbors than it is to say this land belongs to us and we belong to God and we're crying out to him. Now, maybe some of you are saying, how does he get all of that out of those verses? It's because I read the whole story and the whole story s- says it pretty much. But I'll give you an example. God raises up Samson. Right? He says, I'm going to give you this boy, and you're to set him apart from birth. From birth, he's to be set apart. And this is our subject for next week, what this all means. But he's supposed to be set apart from birth, and he's going to begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And the first words out of Samson's mouth in the narrative of his own life is this. Mom and dad, I met this really good-looking Philistine girl. I want to marry her. Go get her for me. That's the story is God is raising him up to destroy the Philistines, and yet he's living in a world where he, even knowing how he was raised, turns right around and says, actually, I'd just as soon intermarry with them than do anything. I think that should feel like familiar territory for us. Like, as we begin to kind of walk into Samson, I think we should appreciate the fact that we're walking in a land where people do what seems right in their own mind, and very often, rather than deal with the difficulty of confession and repentance, they just pursue the norm. Even though they know they're being less, even though they know they're compromising, even though they know God's not happy, it takes energy to cry out. And so they're living a life of compromise. But I have to add to this, and this is, to me, the brightness that shows up in Judges, is even though the darkness is all coming from what man does, but the brightness in the story of Judges is that God always does right by people. And what you see in the story is a God who sent a Savior when no one was asking. And that should matter to us. Because it's one thing when the Hebrew people are crying out for a Savior, Lord, send a Savior, send a Savior. And that's one reason to justify the coming of of Christ, for example, right? That he came because people were crying out. But my joy and my Savior is that God sent him when I was not even calling out. Right, while we were yet sinners, while we were wallowing in our sin, before you or I or anybody really had a seminal thought of conversion or repentance, God already had in his, his mind that he will send someone who will be the deliverance for his people. But in a sense, our salvation is predicated on the fact that God sent a deliverer when we were not asking. It's my hope this morning to kind of begin three weeks of examining how Christ shows up in a land where people are doing what is right in their minds but God is negotiating his will throughout it all. And I hope, especially by the way, if there's someone here who's not a Christian, right, or if you're not in the faith or if you're skeptical, if you're not asking, I'm here to say this is, God sent his deliverer anyway. That Maybe God has sent his Savior. Not because you were asking, but that so that you might ask. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, on the eve of the story of Samson, I pray that we might be able to negotiate through the graphic color and heaviness and, and hardship of the details, Lord, and to see your soft spirit at work. Lord, I pray ahead of time uh, over each one of our spirits as we deal with tough issues, as we kind of stare face on to the violence of God and, and reconcile that. Lord, and I, I, pr- I pray this morning for a healthy spirit of confession this month as we look in this story, uh, that we are generally people who are attracted to doing what seems right in our own mind and are prone to be forgetful of what you've done and what you've called us to. But Lord, I, I do thank you that we might know fully that even when we were not asking, you've sent your son. I pray that this would guide us that the optimism of your grace amidst our disappointment would drive us to know more about you and might give us hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.